If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Good morning, afternoon or evening listeners. You join me at a particularly dramatic moment. <laughs> so this is in your past and we will be gone now. Uh, but this is going to be a cash call. We urgently need you to donate to the show so I can buy a big bag of valleys and disappear up the woods for a couple of days. <laughs> um, I'm really feeling it. I'm really feeling it. I like to think I can keep a good cool head on it but it's, it's just not happening um, yeah donate to the podcast we won't use them for valleys or at least not most of them uh, we will return the favour by giving you playlists a t-shirt at a certain level a personalised t-shirt at another level which is really pretty cool uh, playlists <laughs> more playlists uh, things that require effort but not necessarily investment and that's kind of what we specialise in yeah um, <laughs> So, yeah, uh, patreon.com forward slash unsung pod. And just subscribe your wee heart out because you only have to do it once and then you can forget about it. And then in like four years, you look at your bank balance, you're like, fuck's sake, I stopped listening to those guys ages ago. I wonder what they do with this. And <laughs> yeah, let's just get this out the road. Let's do it now, sooner rather than later. Thanks, we're going to do a show now. Bye. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I'm your host Mark Fraser and I'm joined by the Chuckle Brothers. Uh, yeah, to to my right is the older 
third chuckle brother who appeared in the program and was actually brothers of them but uh wasn't paul or barry it's uh, mr chris chuckle <laughs> I, I think i think this is kind of ironic as well because i'm really not chuckling <laughs> exactly what, <I> said. <laughs> <laughs> what was the third brother called do you know i don't know paul david ian don't know paul barry what fits with paul and barry Gary, Dave, probably. I mean, probably Dave. Yeah, probably no Dave. to Dave's, but it is that kind of. Hey, that's fine. You got, you got a lads TV channel named after you. So you, I no, <laughs> I, Chris, I am getting a vibe of. Um, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Off you right now. Is that the vibe? There's a touch it. I think the, the thing is we're working against the clock a little uh, because my downstairs neighbours are in a chamber of steadily rising water, <laughs> and it'll be a bit like uh, what was that Sylvester Stallone film where he was stuck in the tunnel? Daylight. Daylight. Daylight, yeah. They'll be getting close to the ceiling, you know, doing that thing where they take their last gasp of air before they go under as we get to the uh, the nexus at the end. Uh, just as we sat down to record the show, they came to the door and said, hey, uh, something's burst and it's coming through. So I'm going to have to probably come and go. So if there's really disjointed, erratic and, and increasingly frantic sense to this episode, <laughs> it's because I'm getting it from all angles uh, and it's not... Uh, welcome. Well, that is um, exciting, though. Talking about getting it from all angles, uh, Dave, how's your week been? Oh. <laughs> yeah. I did, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly been a week, but um, as I was showing you on the webcam earlier, I got a little gift in the post from my pal who does just some random stuff on Etsy, and uh, she made a little corn sticker but instead of corn it said corn because she's a vegan and it's a laugh and it's you know and, the and that's and that's how you guys make life worth living yeah exactly <laughs> puns instead of buns of meat <laughs> <laughs> puns instead of b12 yeah exactly but um she actually is just sending them sending them out to her pals because her etsy got an email from corn's lawyer saying do not do this please stop uh and i mean she's sold maybe 10 of them <laughs> for two pounds and she gives all the money to a local charity so it's a good yeah, thing I mean, that corn are employing lawyers to you know really get those bad guys it's conscientious that sounds like an intern that's looking for a promotion uh, but i mean it, it, you showed me it and i mean in that local the key is pretty big so i'd say at least one third of it is completely unrecognizably different mm-hmm. and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you'd think Corn had more to worry about, like keeping head from talking in public, for example. <laughs> yeah, or just and, jo- or and just fact, releasing Davis, more albums, keeping most of the members from talking in public these days. Yeah, <laughs> Mark, how are you? How's your week been? Yeah, I'm on annual leave this week, so that's been pretty good. Um, a wee holiday, not a staycation. Yeah, no, I'm to do anything. I was originally hoping to go away and do some writing somewhere, but my car's fucked. My car was fucked; it's now fixed. So that kind of any money I had for that is now completely gone. Uh, um, I'm going to find stuff for Mark to do anyway, just so he doesn't <laughs> get bored. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've had a couple of flat viewings, got a couple more. You know, finally looking to get on that house and the old housing ladder. I'm starting to turn grey now that I'm 35 this year, and I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to try and buy a house. So. Yeah, that's just, that's true. Actually, Chris, I also put my first ever bid on a house on last week. So me, and Mark, looking to get on that property ladder. I mean, 
my <laughs> self-esteem. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not been great recently, but it's, it's good that you guys are doing so much to help kind of buoy me up. That's fine. Talking about buoying me up, I hope my, na- my neighbours are doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you see a snorkel coming out the window, you know you should probably go downstairs and check. Yeah, man. So Chris, so, I mean, this is your yeah. record, what are we doing? This is my record and I'm so behind this choice as well. I'm just worried that my state of mind is not going to do it justice. So um, I feel more like the, sh- the mood would suit Pig Destroyer or Nails or maybe a Napalm Death. Yeah. Uh, but Saul's getting it, so uh, we'll, we'll do our best for him. Uh, this is Saul Williams by Saul Williams. This album came out in 2004 and it was something I encountered totally by accident. I think it was maybe 120 minutes, something like that. I was up late watching TV and I saw the video for the track List of Demands. And as you guys will probably know, <laughs> picking hip hop records isn't usually my forte. Uh, but this is like one artist that really jumped out and grabbed me very early on, and I was surprised. And uh, on further uh, investigation, that I really liked the record uh, as a whole. Um, I mean, I have time for some of his other work. In fact, I have time for a fair bit of his other work, although none of it. Uh, really grabs me for various reasons we'll go through that uh, and actually at the time when I realised that I liked this guy I was completely oblivious to his uh, connections to people like Trent Reznor to Serge Tankian from System of a Down uh, I, I was unaware of that um, so yeah it turns out I've just got naturally good taste no, of course. No, it's interesting that I mean it's fin- finally you have chosen a hip hop record but you've chosen one that Chosen it from a guy who is like totally enveloped in that alternative rock scene of the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, but at the and same I, time, I, he, he modelled a lot of his like he, he, a lot of his production was with guys like Rick Rubin because of the hip hop artists they'd worked with. It wasn't purely rock orientated. Um, I think actually one of the things I probably mentioned Saul Williams when we did the POS episode, and I think he that made me feel. Similarly, uh, the nods to bands like Fugazi, Saul Williams makes nods to at the drive-in, things like that in his career. Um, they, they, they occupied a similar space for me and it, it enabled me to kind of get at it at a more kind of analogue, lively, energetic sort of kick off in this field. Yeah, um, I'm not I'm not sure about Mark, but I I mean, I think Mark and I are definitely more into hip hop than you are, Chris. But I, I think that's safe think to say. You are ahead Dave, of the I game. Think, I, I think oh. this table is more into hip hop. <laughs> but I, 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 I'm pretty sure I haven't spoken to Mark a little bit that we kind of both missed the boat with Williams uh, compared to you. And we're both sort of catching up on him. But having listened to him, you can certainly see links and influence in quite a few of the hip hop records that we have already covered, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of cross pollination with Death Grips. Oh, 
He's a big fan of them, uh, mm-hmm. so as, as they rose, I think it effect, it, it kind of fed into his output as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, we'll cover all that, but just to, uh, uh, what I really hope you guys can do is, but as you've mentioned, I'm I'm not massively skilled on hip hop, uh, despite all the years now of doing this podcast, um, and I think it helps when I run something like this by you because you can give me information on a lot of the kind of genesis of it that I'm really oblivious to. I'm just like, I like this. I don't really know where some of these elements or influences come from. Um, I have a couple of touchstones, maybe, thanks to stuff we've done on, like, I don't know, a Public Enemy, maybe. Um, like, a couple of very crude touchstones like that. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be good because I think you can, yeah, take me to school a wee bit. Um Saul Williams, a little bit of background, he was born in 1972. Uh, by the way, do you know Saul Williams is uh, 12 years old? <laughs> is it? What, yeah, still? He's born, he's born on 29th of February. 29th of February. Ah, yeah, he's classic. Old, he's only had 12 birthdays. Is that? Am I right in saying the Queen is also born on that day? Or have I made that up? I think you've made that um, up. I think I made that up. Is, it's is just because she that, has an official birthday rather than a real birthday. Is, I don't know. Is that when she actually emerged or when she passed from larvae into second stage sort of reptile insect? I, I, I don't think uh, reptiles have larvae. They're just like no, eggs, mate. That's because that's it's a space reptile. It's not the same. Uh, okay. Yeah, I get you. You need to read more David Icke. I've got a book. I'll give it. Um, Please don't. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> know your enemy, Mark. Know your enemy. Um, so he was born in Newburgh, or Newburgh, mm. as we would say. As we, as, as we would correctly say. <laughs> um, in New York State. Uh, he's he's sort of like a bit of a cosmopolitan guy. He, he, does he live in Paris currently? He spent a lot of time in London. I know that. He lives in LA now. Does he? Okay, he's mm. back in LA now. He lived in Paris for a, quite a time. He spent a lot of time in London. He also spent a year in Brazil, and obviously he's, he's from New York. And I, I think uh, I think some of the internationalism sort of uh, informs his music a bit as well. It's it's a lot more inclusive. It seems a little bit more out of its bubble, perhaps as as a, as a result of that, um, as well as the fact that he's he's an artist on multiple platforms, multimedia. He had published two books of poetry before his first record even came out. Uh, he had a book called Seventh Octave and a book called She, but S slash He. He was a big mover in uh, the slam poetry scene in New York. He was even in a film called Slam about that. And I think since then he's well, he's got another was it four poetry books in the time since hmm. he's directed films, music videos. He has done commissioned artwork. He's done sort of. He wrote a play. He was in a Tupac Shakur play. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of a lot of strings to this guy's bow, and you know, fittingly, his music is suitably difficult to sort of like pigeonhole as well. Um, the film that he was in, Slam, actually won a Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, uh, and it also won the what they call the Camera Door at Cannes in 1998. Uh, he had a cameo in Capex. Yeah. Kevin Spacey, Jeff Bridges movie. Um, he was fairly recently, oh well, fairly recently, I think it was 2012, in a, in a French movie called Aujourd'hui, which means today, a French Senegalese movie actually, um, which is sounds actually really compelling. I was going to try and find it. It's about a, a guy who's got one day to live and decides he's going to make it 
the most amazing fulfilling day he possibly can. So I mean, Saul Williams, when I first saw his video, I, maybe I looked into it straight after and I was immediately struck by the fact that this guy's not really a musician, he's really just an artist who's released a record, which is kind of an interesting twist on it. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that really stands out, and I've, I've spoken on this many times at length during the Danny Brown episode for anyone that wants to bust my chops, but one of the things I find really alienating about hip-hop, or some hip-hop, uh, is that the lyricism is uh, the braggadocio, as Saul Williams phrases it in one of his songs. Um, There's something... uh, I love the older, really political, energised, sort of confrontational, direct hip-hop. That feels really punk to me. I really like that, and I find it much easier to relate to it. So Public Enemy is a good example, or KRS-One. I really like some of the kind of trend towards much more... So it's a slightly woke, slightly more uh, high-minded, poetic uh, approach to it, which I think Saul Williams really tries to do in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious. The stuff I really don't dig is the stuff about bitches and and watches and trainers. doesn't do it for me at all, no matter how good the beats are, and it's something I've never really been able to disconnect from. So Saul Williams, I find his his lyricism just really compelling. On the two good levels, he's both political and poetic, and I think at his best, he marries them really brilliantly, really effortlessly, and and probably never more so than than on this album. Um, what what were your early takes on him before I start going into records themselves? Um, he's, I, I admire the fact that he's he's tried a lot of different things with his music. You know, I think he said about about his first record, Amateur Rockstar, that it was basically just him reciting poetry over music, and then it wasn't really so until this record where he actually started to write music and albums and songs. Um, and then he's, he's pushed it in really interesting directions and tried loads of really loads of really cool things. I think it gets a kind of like a wee bit dimension returns as, as his career goes on, but he's still capable of turning out some really good stuff. I, I, I'd love to read some of his books, to be honest. You know, mm. um, from a poetry point point of view, you definitely get a really big Allen Ginsberg vibe off him, you know, it's clear that he was quite, he was obviously quite into the whole sort of beatniks in the 60s, you know, which which Ginsberg came from, along with Kerou- Kerouac and all that, you know. You can totally get that kind of stream of consciousness, kind of howl vibe from it, and that's another, that's one of the reasons why I love his, lyric- his lyricism so much, because it reminds me of that. See um, what you said there as well, I think that's very true, but when I hear him, I get a sort of a marriage of the likes of Sam Cooke and Ginsberg. Do you know what I mean? You get that sort of cross-cultural... Um, uh, black perspective, African American perspective. You get the hints, not like overbearing politics, but you do get the good, profound moments of both politics and just social narrative. What it's like to live as a black man, what black lives are like day to day. But then through this lens of like, it's quite verbose at times. It's quite, uh, yeah, it's quite elaborate. It's not just so like. The language is not just plain spoken as some of the old Motown could be, mm-hmm. and I, I really like that that sort of fusion of the two styles. Yeah, he also talks about in interviews, and you can, if you pay attention, you can hear it. Oh, oh, it's definitely re- it's definitely referenced in one of the songs on this record as well. It's like he loves Shakespeare, you know. You know, a lot of the time, the thing that he was looking for in hip hop that he saw in, in Shakespeare's work. He was always feel always felt as though he was trying to write rhymes in old English, you know. And if you if you, if you actually read the original Shakespeare or if you read Ch- Chaucer or anything like that, you can totally see that. Um, and I find that I find that quite fascinating as well. What about you, David? Uh, yeah, I mean, I got a, like a proper modern Renaissance man polymath vibe off him. 
a lot of interesting stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll guess we'll go into the records, but I found a lot of good stuff throughout his discography. And I, yeah, he's just quite an interesting character in terms of like his pathway. Yeah, he's come from the mean streets, as he put it, but he, um, you know, he kind of got his break from a documentary following slam poetry rather than getting, you know, signed up by a big hip hop guy. And then it appeared that, yeah, he got into music more from, yeah, some like classic hip hop folk given breaks, but also rock and alternative guys and soul people as well. And I mean, doing your your first LP with Rick Rubin is pretty mad. <laughs> you yeah. Know, so yeah, definitely. Um, like music is not necessarily his main thing, and it's it's just interesting to see how it's part of his overall oeuvre rather than his entire artistic output. But yeah, it's it's, it's interesting to think. I, I was not not really able to identify why he ended up recording his first album with Rick Rubin. I know he'd been doing some stuff, but as you say, it's a it's a pretty big fish to land so early on. Um, think, well, it just he, it seems that like so he was in that Slam Nation documentary, which then which won a couple of prizes, I think, and he actually won a, the title of a Grand Slam champion, and then mm-hmm. that led to like the sort of biog movie vibe called slam which was like you know the the dramatization of the documentary so i think off that he was just like shit hot property you know slam poetry really fucking cool he's like alternative hip-hop but alternative in a very intellectual way so immediately it turned out that he was doing some music he's then doing stuff he was working with naz the fujis you know della soul are taking him on tour so I guess, yeah, I don't know. Rick Rubin probably heard his name from through these circles. Signed him to American straight away, basically. American Recordings, which is obviously what the first record was released on. So he's on a major, a, a pseudo major label, I suppose, like pretty much straight away. Yeah, it's interesting because we'll talk about the first album just now, which is Amethyst Rockstar for 2001. In a past life, I was a woodcarver's knife, the sharpened blade of a woodcutter. The eldest son of the chief's brother A maker of drums We scrape the insides of goat hides To seek the hollows where sound resides And it seems like he came out the gates You know, it was like a really big hitter It's like Ruben's doing it, it's on that label Let's let's really go big straight away See if this guy just lands super hot And the thing is, he didn't really land super hot Got really lukewarm reviews In some cases actually quite negative reviews I saw a couple that were like one or one and a half out of five They felt that the music was bent to the lyrics too much Uh, Obviously, being a slam poet, that was going to be a big part of it But they hadn't quite found the balance the way they did in in later works Um, I did notice it Do you see that Chad Smith plays drums in this In track 7 in that first album That's pretty cool (laughs) From the the Red Hot Chilies for anyone lucky enough to not know who Chad Smith is But yeah, it was was sort of met, kind of lukewarm I mean, there's some stuff in it that you can tell is like maybe trying a little bit too hard. There's a track called Fearless, number five, which I think tries to be a single. But it ends up this kind of clunky rap rock thing. Uh, same with uh, one called Omnia American. Trees that once upon a dawn's early light, born bits of night, children of night. 
it has a slight Rage Against the Machine nods, but it's uh, also just a little bit clumsy. Yeah, it's a sample um, from Born of a Broken Man. Um, is it? That, yeah, because yeah, it, it kind of ends up sounding a bit more like Kid Rock than Death Grips, if you know what I mean. And yeah. I don't think that's a particularly good look. Uh, the track on that uh, is it, well, was it? I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Is it number Penny for a Thought? Number two. Exactly how much is going to cost a female meal? What you going to do with this freedom? Talk on the radio? Radio programming is just that. A brainwashed and clean of purpose. To be honest, some freedom of speech makes me nervous. And you looking for another martyr in the form of a man here like a mane with an outstretched hand? Is it number two? Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Well, pe- penny, penny for a thought. I thought it was pretty good. I like the song. That. Yeah, it's a good song. Yeah, I like to flow in that mm-hmm. song. That was one where you felt like it kind of clicked, but there just wasn't enough on that record. And whilst I don't think it's a one or one and a half out of five, I, I can see why people were a little bit uh, unsure of it. Yeah, and you know, Pitchfork gave it eight point one out of ten, which is mad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You do sometimes get these little anomalous reviews. You know, somebody either reviews it super low or somebody reviews it super high. I, I, it's definitely not that either. Whilst it's not a 1 out of 5, it's definitely not an 8 out of 10. Mm-hmm. I think the the Pitchfork reviewer also reviewed the Saul Williams, you know, the self-titled record, and said the first record had been divisive and a lot of people didn't like it, but it was one of their favourite records. So he was very aware that he was he wasn't... And the majority of people yeah. loving it, which is fair, and I guess that's how things like Metacritic work. They try and average out those sort of those, those peaks and troughs. I mean, fuck, that's what our show is. Eh? It's mm-hmm. picking out those albums that we're like, this album's a totally eight out of ten, but it only got four, you know. Mm-hmm. But I get, I, I'm not massively sold on that first record. It just doesn't really, it doesn't really seem like it's got much of his identity in it either. Like, there's not enough. Whilst there is a lot of poetry in it, it just doesn't seem particularly true to his brand. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the rapping, so the actual rapping when he's not, I suppose. He doesn't do as much as spoken word stuff on that album, so the experimentalism isn't really on it. You can see, you can kind of get the feel that he's going for a straight up hip hop record. And to me, it comes across a lot of times like Buster Rhymes. I don't know how you felt, Dave, but like I get that in his flow and Nas as well, which I guess is who he was kind of looking at. But if you're coming from slam poetry, that is not rap. That's yeah. not, it's a totally different thing. And clearly, when we get to the, this album, the one we're going to talk about later on, that is the case. You know, he becomes I mean, a rapper. It must be intimidating though to be in a studio with Rick Rubin for your first record, and you know if Rick was like, "All right, let's let's go big," and you're sort of maybe being a, you don't have a, a confident enough uh, sense of your own artistry yet to 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 be pushing back against someone as as as. Although I'm not criticising Rick Rubin as a guy, but just as a sort of presence and a a reputation that you're trying to conform maybe a wee bit to what he can do. Um, 2003 he brought out an EP which I think is quite pivotal, it's called Not In My Name and it's very very political, it's really based around the Iraq war Two autumns and I haven't changed enough It's September 12th and the sky is falling The sun is risen A city built of five dimensions undergoing circumcision Eight days under Judaic law Dear diary, I'm fiery Divine winds, my friend Took me back to the beginning uh, He worked on it with DJ Spooky and DJ Goo um, it, it starts with a thing called The Pledge Or The Pledge of Resistance whatever, Depending on where you, you, you read it The greatest Americans Have not been born yet They are waiting patiently for the past to die. Please give blood, George Bush. Um, It's it's a speech he gave, I think it was in Central Park, or was it? Yeah, Central Park, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's actually, it's it's a really strong speech, it's really moving, it's kind of equal parts poetry and just sort of direct... uh, 
I don't know, in treatment for people to be more mindful of what was actually going on uh, in the US and the Iraq war at the time. It's, it's, it's quite quite affecting and um, there's a track on it called Bloodletting which I think is the best track on that, that EP which is partly that speech performed over a kind of synth and drums combo The cries of children, the crack of bones the shriek of sirens or is that his mighty voice your angry god craving the sacrifice of virgin generation sons degenerate, your holy books written in red ink on burning sands your prayers between and around about the time that he brought that out, he was also supporting and touring with people like KRS One, De La Soul, Erica Badu, even tellingly, even Buckethead. So early on, it was sort of identified that this guy's sensibilities didn't lie in a kind of traditional by the book kind of hip hop vein. Mm. Um, but for, in terms of developing his political identity, I think that EP is actually really quite crucial. I agree. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, there's, there's not much to it. I mean, obviously, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of um, remixes on it. So most of it is made, basically remixes of the pledge, to be honest. Um, but yeah, Bloodletting's a really a really good track, and I, I do find that you know, if you're a slampo, I can imagine I can imagine you're, what you're saying about the whole Rick Rubin thing, right? You might have been a bit intimidated to go full to, to go full whack with this first record, but two years later, you drop this EP, and it's like, well, this is a guy who's becoming himself, you know. You feel mm-hmm. as though that his voice is actually starting to be more mm-hmm. singular. And and that's the thing. I think that EP, as you say, there's very little actual material on it other than, other than the remixes. But I think in terms of an identity and a sense of purpose, it plays a really, really crucial role in the guy's career. Mm-hmm. And following that, 2004, brought out Saul Williams. We'll, we'll go back to that in, in a lot more detail. But tellingly, on that record, he ends up working with Serge Tanky and Zach De La Rocha, uh, Ike Owens, the the player from Mars Volta uh, the political content is much more astute and much more sort of integrated seamlessly into the process I think as well as I say that I think that highlights the importance of that EP that, that, that came prior and him really finding himself uh, by 2005 um, he was touring with Nine Inch Nails and he also opened for Mars Volta at one point um, he was invited to Lollapalooza and then in 2006 he toured with Nine Inch Nails in North America and appeared on the Year Zero album. Those are quite significant developments for this guy in terms of his alignment. He is hip-hop, but he is now being aligned with electronic and rock and industrial producers. And Yeah, it feels to me that he, he became like the rap guy in the, this rock circle. Mm-hmm. But it's like, a bit like Death Grips, because they had the Nine Inch Nails tie-in as well for the tour, didn't they? Yeah. Although, I mean, he actually They didn't actually go. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a sort of similar terrain that, the, that they're, uh, they're occupying there in that sense. 2007, um, I think he brought out actually what was a really good record, the, the inevitable rise and liberation of Niggy Tardust. Without you, he'd be worthless, homeless, earthless, Venus hot and top up in the circus. Freak show, hear him speak so properly, cause every word is measured against meaning, probably scheming to unlearn us. Don't you call him by his name, why people call him... Mm. Clearly a, a play on, on the Boy album, uh, produced by Trent Reznor, uh, completely... Um, Really strong reception for this album, critically, both for Saul Williams and also for Trent Reznor yeah, in probably terms of his production. Probably Reznor's best production work 
I would say, you know, I think we spoke about it way back at the very start when we did Nine Inch Nails, which is like literally a way back at the start of this fucking podcast, right? And I, I will not, it would not, it would not surprise me if anybody remembers me saying this, but like Trent Nettles production style has always been really indebted to the Bomb Squad. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Bomb Squad influence on Saul Williams, but when Trent Lesnar actually goes full hip hop and then just like smashes it right up against his industrial leanings, it, it, it creates mm-hmm. a record which I think is a lot of the time is pretty magical to be honest. Yeah, it's, I've, I find that a lot of hip-hop producers are heavily influenced and trying to do what Trent Reznor does. It, uh, yeah, I think it really works. It's, it's, it's a good record, I think. Yeah, I mean, Trent Reznor's role in this uh, as a writer is, is pretty key. The two of them wrote it all together. There's, there's people included in various other songs here and there, but it's fundamentally the two of them collaborating on the music. And I, I do think that this could have been an unsung album too it's it's pretty strong um it certainly starts very strong where it, what i think overall lets it down is that it's a little bit over long mm-hmm. um especially in the, the deluxe edition form which is like whew, like 70 odd minutes and it's just it, it burns you out a wee bit which is a shame because whittled down this could have been a pretty amazing record black history month the, the opener has this really muscular sound to it and ha- it kind of hints at that kind of death grips beefy angry alternative style can you feel it nothing can save ya i'm tougher than bullets so baby pray to your savior i've never been shot but i bet you i'm brave I think Convict Colony, the second track, and it's the best song. Well, yeah. it's for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, has this great, almost zoo-esque sax slash synth line that go that goes through it. The, the the live drumming stuff is brilliant, the kind of analog drum thing, and it, the the track really swings as well. Uh, Mark, you actually mentioning the Bomb Squad. I've got a note here for track three, which is conveniently uh, acceptable to say on a podcast. Tr brackets n brackets Igor. That is a huge uh, Bomb Squad influence. It mm-hmm. just it starts like a Public Enemy track. Totally, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. The chorus in that tune doesn't work for me, but it does have a, a really great bridge in it, a really minimalist thing. Um, I'm not a fan of the Sunday Bloody Sunday YouTube cover. <laughs> I really wish he hadn't done that. I don't think it's a bad cover. I just think it it it, it, it doesn't really yeah it doesn't really fit on the record. Maybe it's a single a- attempt. It's maybe a a, a branding attempt. Oh, he's a crossover act. He can reinterpret stuff. It, it's accomplished as a cover. The, the two of them have done a good job of it. I just don't know why they bothered. I just don't think mm-hmm. it was a particularly worthwhile exercise. Yeah. Uh, the fifth track in it, break. I think has a really strong Nine Inch Nails feel to it in the production. Niggy Tardust, the track itself, uh, the humour in the chorus, uh, you know, the whole kind of shut up. When I say nigga, you say nothing, nigga, nigga. 
when I say nigga, you say nothing, nigga. Shut up. But yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. So that was excellent, man. Really good. Uh, and also, track eight, talk about Nine Inch Nails uh, vibes that what the fuck are WTF? Exclamation mark. Really, really strong Nine Inch Nails flavour. And I think that. That think that album's actually really, really strong. I just wish they'd had the self-control to to, to, to reduce it. Yeah, it's de- it's definitely over long. Um, I I I actually I find like I really like the production on it, but I I also just I think I maybe like his delivery a little bit more on this record. It's kind of a little less preachy and more aware of the the music in the background rather than here is some poetry on top of some beats i think he just manages to work it into the the actual tunes a little bit more it's also i think it's definitely like musically you can hear sort of alternative hip-hop has been influenced by this record you listen to really cool art school hip-hop like mickey blanco and leaf and die burger sort of stuff now which is nearly what 15 years later you know, it could be just on that album and, mm-hmm. you know, people in Pitchfork are going, oh, this stuff sounds cool as fuck and you're like, oh, well, they actually did this 14 years ago, so It's interesting you said about Delivery Dave because his voice and Trent Reznor's voice often blend into one on this album so much Oh, absolutely, sometimes you can't so tell similar. who yeah. yeah, definitely, yeah I was just wondering if it was just me that felt that, but clearly you guys agree No, so. <laughs> I, I was having to check who was actually doing the singing and some of it, yeah, yeah. That's not just like part of this record though, because you can hear the Trent Reznor style delivery on the last album as well. Uh, well, I'm actually going to drop a name into the mix uh, shortly that I think is a closer reference than just Trent Reznor. I agree with you. I think he got the influence from Trent Reznor, but you think I think he ends up somewhere else. I just want to take a very brief sojourn to say when we record this podcast, I'm usually facing out my window, mm-hmm. as you guys know, mm-hmm. uh, facing me right now, and 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 I'm on the second floor. And engaging with me on an uh, even as I talk right now is a guy in like an athletics top, khaki bottoms, really long hair but totally bald on top, sitting <laughs> in a sort of lotus position, meditating, <laughs> but occasionally raising his his arms like the, the the wings of a crane, and and this is not in some beautiful natural surround. He's sitting under a parking sign next to a pavement where I. I literally saw a dog shit four minutes ago <laughs> and, and after the dog shit it just sat and looked at him and that would have been enough to put me off but instead he's just looking up at me and I'm well, just he's, he's fully into it I'm just you can actually the, your video I, I can just see the sun streaming through but maybe that's not the sun maybe that's his glow that's his aura <laughs> yeah I, I do kind of want to lift the computer and turn it around but it's just he's going to click and then he's just going to keep doing this weird eye contact thing alright I'm going to have to look away from the guy now. <laughs> he, he won he established superiority from his zen position um, <laughs> let's go on. it's really off-putting because I've set my mic up now and I can't look away and I think he knows 
knows that I'm talking about him now as well. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. All right. Uh, I can't, oh, wow. Okay, um, so after... Um, so, uh, yeah, 2009 actually had a record that came out called... I think it's Night White, but it's yeah. NGH and then WHT, and it's really a spoken word poetry album, but set to music. Um, it was done in collaboration with a guy called Thomas Kessler and performed by the Arditi Quartet, who are a sort of, sort of semi... Well-known, slightly cult quartet. Well, just a string quartet, yeah. They do, but, it in, but they do a lot of like interpretive modern stuff. Mm-hmm. Two thousand and eleven on Columbia Records, he brought out Volcanic Sunlight. Which is. A bit of a production departure for him, actually. I mean, no Trent Reznor this time. It's it's a bit easier in the production. It's a bit lighter in the touch. Uh, less complex as an album, generally. Uh, his daughter Saturn's on this, and so is the, the singer Janelle Monae. Um, there's, again, a lot of kind of analogue drum kits involved. Uh, and this is where, I think, as you were talking about the, the, the synthesis of him and Trent Reznor's style of vocals, emerges for me sounding exactly like Seal. <laughs> and I, that, I'm, I'm, that is not that I love Seal man I think Seal's brilliant and if you listen to like the album tracks of, of Seal there's some really amazing stuff in there right but yep. that form of singing that, that register and stuff it's actually got a lot of that and it starts to reappear through some of these records from now but yeah so Patience I think track 2 in this is the one where I really first noticed like wow this really sounds like a Seal album track he, he then veers away from that track three and that give it up is got a sort of Motowny vibe. Um, there's a bit more seal in track five diagram. There's a there's a tune on that that was a single called Dance that I fucking hate though. Yeah. yeah, that's the one with Janelle Monáe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. I mean, you can see that, he, like, the vibe he was going for. He's going for that sort of, um, like, fattened Prince uh, disco pop <laughs> yeah. thing is, on is, this. Is that, the is that alarm. A Prince alarm? At the alarm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not very often that Dave sets off the Prince Alarm. <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I do have like a huge playlist. Uh, Prince? Well, no, it's called Not <laughs> Prince. Fat Prince, yeah. It's called Not Prince. And it's basically like all this stuff that came out like between 2010 and 2017 that it was just like a whole new generation of people had discovered Prince and gone, oh, let's make yeah. music to shag to. And like, so, I feel like this is his his record where he's like, oh, let's have a go at making some pop and some music for shagging yeah. but it's just it's not nearly as successful it's certainly not as good as the album before it and it's certainly not as good as the, in my opinion as the, the, the self-titled record mm-hmm. um, I, but- I, I also I just don't think although he's trying something new he seems like quite a an angry man or not an angry man but you know he's got quite a lot of issues pretty driven seems, yeah. yeah pretty driven and it's like I, th- I, th- I think if you want to make a good shagging record You just want to think about shagging all the time mm. But you've got more on your mind than this <laughs> So it seems like he's not fully behind it 
Needs to simplify. Mind the pun. <laughs> just um, I think that was actually good enough to merit a second Prince Alarm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, he then embarks in this kind of conceptual thing, which I suspect we're only part way through, called uh, Martyr Loser King. Mm-hmm. Obviously a play on Martin Luther King, but Martyr Loser King is a character that he kind of develops. Yeah. Um, he brought the first album out, which is called Martyr Loser King, in 2016. It's on Fader. A bit more of the, the seal vocals, but this time there's like a lot of electro. Um, apparently this uh, is the first of a trilogy, as I mentioned, and this one addresses uh, an imaginary village made of recycled computer parts. Uh, and the crux of it is that the, the computers can't exist without a lot of the components that have to be taken from Africa. So there's references to places like Burundi, where a, a lot of those like silicon components and stuff are extracted at, to the detriment in a lot of cases of the workers and the local population uh, but there's a lot of tribal touches in this there's a lot of like really what we would patronisingly label world music I guess do you know yeah. Do you know the story behind this record like what the actual story of this particular album is well is this not that uh, somebody makes a supercomputer from scavenged computer parts well it's a Burundian hacker who sparked a revolution via the internet like that's that's the, the ethos of this record and that, that all those all those tribal sounds come from when he was spending time in places like Senegal and South Africa and actually mm-hmm. in Africa and so it's like an actual organic absorption of like his experiences there which I think is pretty fucking cool it's cool it's meant to be slightly sci-fi though it's not meant to be sort of a literal real-time interpretation of it it's, mm-hmm. it's like a an abstracted narrative Inspired by that, I get. I think. I think I mentioned it. I think it has a lot of seal vibes. It's got an at the drive-in uh, vocal refrain. It does, yeah. John Ashes, Ashes. It's got invalid yeah. letter department, doesn't it? Um, track six, Burundi. I think is really, really good. Really mean. Really hooky. I think that he actually brought that out as a single. It's got this really good heavy percussion on it that, that stands out. Yeah, my um, from Warpaints on that one. And my favourite track on this al- album is uh, called The Noise Came From Here. And that's got this excellent a cappella. It's just a, such a fucking brilliant uh, uh, little chord melody harmony thing that's going on in the background during this song. Mm-hmm. It's so stripped down, but it's fucking excellent. I really, really like that. Um, and it's, 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 it's an interesting album. I didn't really get a lot out of it beyond that point. It started to kind of, I don't know, it, it lagged a bit, albeit hats off for the concept. Um, and it was followed by Encrypted and Vulnerable in 2019, which is the second of the trilogy. Also very dark and experimental. The, the press release for this album is fucking... is hard work, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, one pull quote was, it's a takedown of heteronormative capitalist patriarchal authoritarian politics. Just fair enough, but that is literally a very small pull quote mm. of a very, very heavy-going press release. Well, he came um, out as queer, didn't he? So... 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, he self-defines as mm-hmm. queer, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and he has, like, his, his relationships have played a big part in this. He has, I think, two daughters from different relationships. One of them is the girl Saturn that, mm-hmm. that appears in a lot of stuff. Um, this album has a strange claim you know, it's a bit like, what is the colour of this dress? I'm questioning my own sanity. I feel like Saul Williams sort of gaslit me a wee bit with his press release here. Because he says, there are no drums in this album. Everything is implied drums. The the beats are invisible. And if you heard them, you imagined it. And I was like, well, I could definitely hear a kick in a hi-hat here. <laughs> so... That's not bad for time hacks. A mountain of stars over the sea. The rippling torment of solitude. I will reach you if only to shake you away. Beneath the crust and mantle of this planet is a birthplace, a crystal of light peering through ocean how, how well has he achieved this? Is this like a magic eye where I just sort of like have assembled drum parts from like the, the detritus and, and the qualities of the other sounds that are happening? But I'm pretty fucking sure, I'm going to put a sample in obviously, that there are kicking hats in here. I'm holding space, I own the night. In the spectrum of awareness and fatality, I take the form of every lover's face. Deep in the eye, in the moonlight satellite of every Maybe he's just sort of very narrowly defining drums. I don't really know. There, there's definitely yeah, drums I, in this album. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Sh- I never n- knew that, and I never noticed there not being drums, that's for sure. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> there's I mean, percussion. There's-, there's some sort of percussion, even if he's just sampled something really low that sounds like a bass drum but i mean i mean yeah i mean it, drums, it, it sounds like <laughs> drums yeah um it's there's some sort of like accompaniment to this as well there was a, a sort of sci-fi cinematic musical thing that was written and directed by him there's a graphic novel as well yeah it's uh and apparently the the the, the the concept behind the second part is uh, about hackers as public servants, and he describes the record as Afro-diasporic futurism. Cool. So uh, he's all—he's yeah. like I've read things about him being really, really inspired by stuff like Parliament and that and mm-hmm. that kind of. Yeah, there's a yeah. He definitely went down that. The the fourth tune in the underground is this really textural sort of found samples construct. It's actually a really beautiful bit of music. I really liked it. And uh, I think the other one that really stood out to me is track six and that, People Above the Moon. The hopeless desperation that I feel. Oh! Which has, again, a few more sort of seal-esque touches to the voice and it sounds a bit like a kind of hip-hop Ziggy Stardust, which sort of works, um, given the character, or the previous character I guess, because this is Martyr Loser King uh, and other than that, the only th- other thing I found was something that actually appeared on Spotify really recently, it was released in 2018 October 2018, called uh, Place by Ted Hearn um, it's a score or an oratorio uh, for something that was staged at the Barbican Centre um, in 2018 it's kind of about gentrification and I think oh, Hearn and Williams and an artist called Patricia McGregor collaborated on it um, all based around the topic of gentrification and spaces and the 
displacement of peoples. Um, there's a lot of voiceovers on it. There's a lot of poetry. I think the, the stuff that I noticed that Saul Williams was predominantly spoken word. Um, there's bits and bobs of singing. Actually, the, whoever the, the vocalist is in it that does a lot of the male singing really sounds somewhere between sort of Perfect Circle Maynard and a guy called Jonathan Melvin from, from Shearwater. It's, it's, it's quite affected, but sort of quite sweet male voice. I'm not a huge fan of it. It's a, but it's not uh, it's not a, a normal album it's not a normal music project it's a company and a, a play um, so yeah I mean and, and that's his back catalogue which only really leaves us to discuss Saul Williams 2004 well let's bloody get on it dive in mm-hmm. 44 minutes long which is just the, the, the dream number uh, 12 tracks which is also probably the dream number I think this is his punkest album mm-hmm. um, I mentioned the sort of Little moments of of uh, callback to POS in my mind, uh, the kind of analog drum mm-hmm. uh, quality. The record is just uh, permeated by this uh, raw sort of unvarnished energy. It feels like the guy's really on a mission with it. Um, I noticed that um, a writer called Mike Diver, who does a lot of stuff uh, in drowning sound, he gave it ten out of ten. Big fan of it. One of the one of the earliest sort of big proponents of the Saul Williams. Um, I I, I want to make a mention of the cover art on it. I think the cover art's kind of charming. I don't actually know what he's sitting in. It's him sitting in some kind of vehicle um, or behind a windscreen. It looks like an ice cream van or a Winnebago, but it's got a loudspeaker on the outside. It kind of fits and helps create this sense of a sort of bootstrapped preacher or like messenger, which I think is really in keeping with with, with the tone of the record itself. Mm -hmm. It starts with a track called Talk to Strangers, which is... Great moody opener, uh, Serge Tankian playing piano on it from System of Down. And my niggas also drugs, and though that may validate me for a spot on MTV, or get me all the airplay that my bank account would need, I was hoping to invest in a lesson that I learned, and I thought this fool would jump me just because it was my turn. Um, I'm really glad, when I heard Serge Tankian was going to appear on this record, I'm really glad that he doesn't sing <laughs> sing exactly yeah it's it's not this really ham-fisted cameo yeah yeah and he because like Serge Tankin kind of basically just ages any music to 2002 yeah so yeah. um yeah and he, and he doesn't he doesn't ever really dial it down when he adds vocals as well um it's atmospheric really somber quite dramatic apparently he does do some of the backing vocals but you absolutely can't tell it's him you can hear the female vocal much more clearly mm-hmm. um the song really gradually builds it, there's, a, there's a great lyric in it I think vulnerability is power which is just a, a brilliant sort of summation of the record itself yeah. and there's also word, a, right? so. yeah and I think the, the, the cello inclusion in it is just really beautiful as well it gives the track a, just a different dimension altogether makes it quite emotional we're gonna make it through this storm where ignorance is common sense and senses is the norm and flags wave high above the truth and that you never touch and stolen goods are overpriced and freedom costs too much and no one seems to recognize the symbols come to life the bitten apple on the screen rather than just uh, being a sort of a monologue yeah it's, it's definitely a step immediately a step up from the first album from Amethyst Rockstar you can see he's, he's thinking about things differently he's going in a slightly different direction with it kind of more mm-hmm. playing to his more natural strengths as a, as a poet you it know? feels more him yeah, yeah. Uh, the second track, Grippo, is just a fucking brilliant song. I was This was the first one I heard after List of Demands. Obviously, I went, heard that on 120 Minutes and went to try and hear more of his stuff. Doors, we are 
first of all, caveat. I checked out the songwriting lyrics for this and I cannot, and I still cannot, after hours of looking, <laughs> uh, find out who the fuck Vardosi and Vardosi are. If it, yeah, I was looking, who are they? I don't know. I like, I, I, I absolutely Because you've got find out. Musa, Musa Bailey has a couple of checks, um, just people that appeared, you know, there's some production and programming folk, but yeah, I've got literally no idea who Vardosi yeah. and Vardosi are. No the, idea. The tracks. It samples uh, a group called Chrome, and I thought maybe it was members of that, but I looked into Chrome, and even though they all use pseudonyms in Chrome, I couldn't find any of the actual real names for those, the main people being Verdosi and Verdosi. So I, I still am um, clueless as to who that is. Um, it has this great sort of noise rock, alt rock, angular quality to this guitar line, and it's somewhere between like Jesus Lizard and something like Arab on Radar. Really like dissonant guitar thing that actually just gets more dissonant as it goes. Um, I love where his vocals are pitched in it. They're not frantic, but they've got enough headroom to enable him to sort of lift into the choruses. Uh, he actually has a sort of slightly drunken feel, like kind of like a drunk style kung fu vocal yeah. in, in the in the chorus that I think's great. Um, and there's a great flow to it, and there's there's also the inclusion of like wee laughs here and there, which gives it a lot of personality. It's got that kind of it feels like it's got a kind of reggae punk vibe to me, you know. Which is, <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah, there's something in that bouncy rhythm. It's definitely got a slight dub vibe to it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of like classic hip hop meets post punk meets dub, and it works somehow. So I was and I was saying earlier on that see if you go into Genius, you can actually see his annotations for his own lyrics, right? And that's one's really interesting because um, the first thing, the first line in the song is "I gave hip hop to white boys when nobody was looking." And basically he says, I began writing this song while I was watching an underground rap performance in a bar in Madison, Wisconsin in 2001. I can't remember the name of the band, but I was really impressed. I felt like they'd found the perfect formula as white Midwestern kids doing hip-hop. They weren't trying to be black or appropriate a culture. They felt like they felt completely original and owned every aspect of what they did. So I'm at the bar drinking a beer and I'm writing on a napkin. And then the song falls out. <laughs> and there's obviously a line at the end of the first verse. It's like, it was a ploy. Get fools tied up with mechanised toys. We begin, we are beings of breath beyond the beings of boys. And it's, and then you see, it's just, I annotated it with like, it's actually bigger than hip hop. You know, it's, it's, it's beyond just these white boys doing hip hop. It's about like the connection of music, you know. And I was like, that's fucking cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the third track is where I think you see that Saul Williams has decided that his future lies in a slightly different direction. This track's called Telegram, and it's built around the track Super Touch by Bad Brains. Uh, the, the members of Bad Brains, Jennifer and Miller, get credited in it. Um, Bad Brains obviously this legendary punk band but mm-hmm. this legendary sort of like non-white presence in, in, in the punk scene which is just hugely influential and important I think and also problematic as fuck as well yeah well unfortunately yeah, yeah but you know problematic or not a bit like Public Enemy still hugely important figures totally. in the, the, the development of musical roles for, for non-white people in America um, there's some great lyrics in this absolutely brilliant lyrics in this it's, it's really quite a kind of 
sludgy, sort of Black Sabbathy song for mm. somebody to be thrown into what seemed like it was going to be a hip hop career. If you've if you've only heard his first record, um, things like like you ain't rich dog, you just got money. It's just a fucking brilliant little couplet. Um, as a critique of hip hop generally, I just think this is fucking excellent. There's a, there's a there's a kind of sequence in it where it goes, uh, the ghettos are dancing off beat. Stop. The masters of ceremonies have forgotten that they were once slaves and have neglected the occasion of this ceremony. Stop. Perhaps we should not have encouraged them to use cordless microphones, for they have walked too far from the source and are emitting a lesser frequency. Stop. Yeah. Such a fucking brilliant image that like cordless mics let them wander too much from the origins of what they were doing. Yeah. It works really well and I and I love how it is very hip hop, but I also I loved how the album that you've brought to the table, the hip hop album <laughs> hates hip hop. <laughs> well, I think I, 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 like, I, don't oh, thanks, think Chris. I, I don't think I go that far. He, he clearly loves hip hop, you know. He says, "Yeah, no, he hates like, what it's become down certain routes." Yeah, it's interesting though because on that kind of topic, like I, I was reading an interview with him when he released uh, Martin Luther King, and he was saying that musically people like Young Thug are totally mind blown to him but like listening to the lyrics make me wish that I didn't speak English you know it's like <laughs> I love the flow and I love the beats and I love the way it's composed basically is what he's saying but like yeah. just the whole lyrical aspect of it is nonsense and he also talks about Kendrick Lamar and El Sweatshirt and stuff and he's saying that with Kendrick the only thing I'm not excited about is his Christianity <laughs> you can't win them all <laughs> you know and I guess that's just the way he reflects on it is like you know you're taking bits that you love and just try to reframe it in different ways and this particular song the spoken word bit at the end that you just quoted there Chris um, is totally Alan Ginsberg-esque man and I fucking love it as a result you know it's mm-hmm. got the exact same kind of cadence as something like America you know and it, it just it works so well for me and the fact that it's like a telegram with the stops just never gets old mm-hmm. yeah uh, is that not the song where he mentions something like we will discontinue this line of braggadocio yeah mm-hmm. yeah in, li- in, light, in light of the current trend of realness stop <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so good really fucking good mm. uh, track four in that act three scene two brackets Shakespeare mm. I hear you to all the people within the sound of my voice tremendous. Zach De La Rocha was such a good choice for this song because the actual synth riff in it sounds like Rage Against the Machine mm-hmm. anyway. Um, has this really trippy kind of cavernous percussion to it. It's quite mid-tempo but has this mm-hmm. real lyrical urgency to it. There's mentions of the oil-rich lands which I think is a nod back to that EP that came before this that I was saying allowed him to express his kind of political identity and react to the Iraq war which he'd been very outspoken about. Um, the track expresses... I th- I think this is quite key actually. The track expresses solidarity with soldiers sent to fight illegal wars rather than having that sort of very reductionist us and them, murderers, that kind of thing. There is a sense of sort of working class traptness, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Like he actually is like, you guys shouldn't end up where you are doing what you've been left to do and feeling like if you didn't do it you were bad people. And I think that's a really that's a really intriguing turn for his politics and it was something that really made me feel uh, I think closer to the guy as, as a thinker um, and he contrasts that talking about you know them being there for the benefit of the Dow Jones um, I think I think that's a really a really strong tune and a really good contribution to the sort of political content of it without it feeling 
What's the word? It's without sloganeering too much, mm-hmm. you know. And he brings, yeah, it, um, brings it right back to Shakespeare, you know, he brings in Brutus in this, and that's like, because Brutus is an honourable man, is actually from uh, Act 3, Scene 2 of Julius Caesar. For for Brutus is an honourable man, is what Shakespeare's Shakespeare written in that. And I guess that's the whole irony of the song, is like, these people are honourable people, but we're sending them off to go and do this horrible horrible shit dishonourable things and uh, it's brilliant that he gives Zach Delarocca the hook and that's one of the things that I love about Zach Delarocca's like non-rage career especially with the most recent stuff with Run the Jewels as well like they always give him the hook because he just he just like fucking he always nails it every single time (laughs) you know well yeah he's like a guaranteed I was going to say a guaranteed hooker. No, I won't say that. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say he's like Doctor Hook. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And it's his only it's his only contribution to this 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 song is the hook in the chorus, and he fucking smashes it. You know. Yeah, um, I was thinking about this song in, in terms of it feels like. To me, it feels a bit like a Portishead, a Portishead song. It's been produced by the Bomb Squad. Like, <laughs> yeah, I totally get that sort of glitchy trip hoppy vibe to it. Yeah. Yeah, but the drums are so fucking loud. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we're at the heavy hitter track five listed demands By the way, the riff in this, I noticed that see when I hum the riff in this, I quite often end up singing the song Subject to Status by Pitch Shifter, which is a really, really <laughs> similar riff. Um, yeah. But it's an absolute slammer of a tune. I still love it. I mean, it's been, I've been listening to the song for years and years. I really like it. I love where he's pitched his voice in it because it sounds permanently strained without it sounding like he doesn't have room to move. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of feedback in it as well. They've used like feedback from what I assume is a guitar or some kind of like instrument running through a speaker to just give it a room energy the kind of thing that Stephen Till was talking about where you get that little squeal before the noise hits mm-hmm. and I think it, it really makes you feel like there's something happening and it gives there's an electricity to the music in that way we aim to remember what we choose to forget God's just a baby and a diaper is wet call the police I'm strapped to the Um, it's stompy, it's quite simple um, I think the live beat in it really bounces along And this again, some great lines uh, the, the phrase, uh, I wrote a video clip And I acted out each part And then I took your picture out and taped it to my heart Fucking gets me every time And I love that little turn yeah. of phrase it's got, a v- it's got a very outcast vibe to it Totally does. Like yeah, old it does. outcast mm-hmm. In like a very good way mm-hmm. yeah, his, his annotation on this is quite funny Because he just he just annotates the first verse as being I'm tired of the bullshit I'm tired of it being hustle and make-belief hustle I'm tired of buying ideas that divorce me from potential <laughs> I'm tired of having my potential Explained to me in terms of money <laughs> It's like totally what this song's about You know and I think there's, there's uh, Do you think he was aware of the irony of the fact that uh, Nike then went on to use it and I I think the vocal in the song you're right is totally excellent and the hook is a total killer especially the way it mm-hmm. plays with the dynamics you know, I know it's like quiet but you don't really get that in a lot of hip hop songs usually it's just straight through the beats you know so yeah, this, I mean there's something genuinely punky about this song that really spoke to me even at that time I mean, 2004 even at that time as somebody that was I don't think I listened to a single other hip hop thing at, mm-hmm. the, at that stage and this still grabbed me enough 
to carry it with me for the last you know 15 16 years yeah. I, I really think it's a, a an excellent bit of songwriting also the, the video is cool it's simple it's a nice close-up energized thing it just it's really well considered it suits the song very very well mm-hmm. um african student movement sixth track wisdom ecstasy addiction dependency discipline counteract pray for peace then attack dominance contradict upper class derelict uh i think it's, it's, a, it's a fucking great song um the percussion uh it's kind of like it's hard to pin where the beat is landing in this song before his voice comes in i really like that touch it's sort of you just get yeah, it's quite few, deconstructed yeah and it's only when he starts singing that you realise that where where the the one is, and I think that's a really nice touch. Um, the song itself is this incredibly almost dryly sarcastic, but still obviously quite tender sort of treatment of black tropes and black issues. There's references to AIDS. There's a use of phrases like Jungle Bunny. There's uh, heart disease, which is obviously an issue that really affect, uh, affects the, the African American community. And then there's little turns like civil rights, civil war. It's it's what I was saying, it's like the politics of blackness without being just about the politics, it's about the personal as well. And I, I thought it was a really, really interesting song, plus it then lapses into this almost deliberately twee um, little sort of sung part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. African um, people. Now tell me where my niggas at. African people. Oh, African people. Oh, African people. Oh, African people. I like where it New falls track. in the album, man. Like in the sequence of the record, I think it comes in at a really good place. The vibe of it, is yeah, like, it's like a nice break, yeah. but it's like in between maybe the two biggest singly tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely evens it out. And there's more, yep. there's more power given to it because for me, because he's he's literally just stating things that affect the African American community or African communities. And no, yeah, it's not even just African American. It's it's like like black people mm-hmm. generally. That's yeah, like the song. Yeah, yeah. It's just he talks about it. going from height uh, like Haiti to Senegal. Yeah, and it's just it's just a statement of things. And you're like fuck. Like when you see it stacked up, you can see that's where the power. Obviously, that's what well. He's, it he's it kind of reminded me of a much more uh, well, a much blacker version of a uh, Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire. <laughs> 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 wow. Wow, <laughs> the, 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 that is the hot white the hot take takes, season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, fucking right. Um, track seven, Black Stacy. Apparently, this is quite an old song. Yeah, apparently, it's apparently had the this first one thing like you wrote. One of the first things yep. you ever wrote. Yeah. Covering up all the insecurities that came bubbling up. My complexion had me stuck in an emotional rut. Like the time your flavor flavored me and you played me yo chub. They say you're too black, man. I think I'm too black. Man, do you think I'm too black? Um, describing his school. His, his middle name's actually Saul Williams. Uh, Saul, Saul Stacy Williams, sorry. Um, hence Black Stacy. It's pretty soul bearing tune, actually. You can really hear the kind of vulnerable young guy coming out in him. It does have like a bit of naivety, like. Like it's an early track but he's waited to a point in his career where he could execute it in a more accomplished way because as the song goes on it really grows as a, as a piece because it really it kind of starts with a sort of like almost like a 90s black street fun swing you know something really really overly simplistic about it but then all these like layers come in and the arrangement by the end even with like the, the flute motif that comes in mm-hmm. it's it's really really well chosen Shoes, they thought it wouldn't face me. I was black, Stacy, the preacher, some from Haiti, who rhymed a lot and 
takes what could have been quite a sort of throwaway, or oh, this was our first tune or one of our early batch. And we've all been in bands with like an early batch where you're like, mm-hmm. but he's waited long enough to do it so that he's done it in a fashion that I think does it actually quite a lot of justice. It's a really good tune. Yeah. It's not my favourite tune in the album, but I think it stands up well and I can imagine how it might have sounded had he not just held on to it. It sounds like an outcast song to me. Which yeah, I mean, it's thing. got that big sort of Andre 3000 vibe, like hook on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I don't quite like that. I don't know, there's just something about that piano-led hip-hop. I think- Dink, that, dink, uh, dink. Yeah, that's that's yeah, what I was saying about the kind of black street thing. Then there's like aye, it just kind of puts me off a little bit, just because it's a very basic, you know, hip hop production trope. It's a nineties um, cheese thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, it it suits the record. It's not yeah. a bad track. Uh, he follows it with a, a great, really short little tune called PG. It's only about what, a minute thirty-five long. really love the beat in this song. Uh, it has a low register to the vocal. It's almost a slightly druggy feel. Lyrics like, sometimes I'm 50 cent but I ain't got no bullets. Despite it being such a, a short track, there's there's a really important ingredient to his per- persona that I think appears in this song and is really emphasised. There's lines like, I'd rather help than fight you, I'd rather hug than swing. Where you realise, uh, you're reminded that this is a guy in the hip-hop community. He does talk about coming from a rough background he does talk about violence and things but he also talks about it from the perspective of you know not glorifying it in any way not not reveling in it not using it like a bat to pe- to beat people around the heads way or, or like a, like a former braggadocio as he says himself that anti-macho enlightened hip-hop quality is sort of this is such a, a small song really contributes in a big way I think at this stage in his career yes yeah, so um, I liked it because it was essentially a satire of hip hop like of like the particularly that particular kind of really popular hip hop in that in that era you know it's like a nice wee nice wee dig to you know the the bling and the fancy cars and all that you know and as his way of saying it's all bullshit <laughs> yeah, that that out, outro repeat as well of a uh, got a heartbeat produced by God and boy it sounds hard. Mm-hmm. It's fucking, it's really hooky. Got a heartbeat produced by God and boy it sounds hard. Got a heartbeat produced by God and boy it sounds hard. Got a heartbeat produced by. God uh, track nine, surrender. Brackets, a second to think. Really dark riff in this one. Um, It doesn't actually seem to be a sample thing So I tried to find out about the samples in the song And I couldn't find anything So I don't know if they actually recorded it themselves If you listen to the bass part It's a Melvin's bass line It's not actually Melvin's bass line But it, it is a Melvin's yeah. bass line well, you know what I mean? it Also it, it sounds like this could be Trent Reznor An album early yep, totally. well. Yeah um, it has this really simple punishing snare line in it as well, like so simple. Um, he's got a bit of falsetto in his vocals, quite strained again. And I, I love the fact as well that, as a, despite the fact that the song's really quite harsh, towards the end, this little chime appears. It's sort of like a pitch shifted bell, mm-hmm. very gentle. And it, the song just sort of like 
tails out in this monologue over this chime and it's really not the way I expect it to go for something that starts so fierce and antagonistic it just sort of like eases you out with something quite thoughtful um, they follow that with Control Freak number 10 when the truth just can't be told but if I some great backward sampling in it his little hints again in Nine Inch Nails I think in this one and obviously this is just prior to him touring with them uh, there's some dead eerie high tones that go through the track really energised, the snare scalps again are totally to the front and totally like clanging like those really harsh snare hits um, the chorus sung is really pretty hooky kind of shows as well that the guy's got a good voice The song's not actually got a lot of instrumentation to it in, in, the, in terms of like layers of melodies and bass and guitar and stuff, but it's, it's really, it makes up for it in the energy. I think, I do like the, the repeating hook in this, it, is, it does work really well. Um, I, I'm also enjoying how he's kind of getting more downbeat as the record kind of winds down. Yeah. You know, yeah. with all the songs that are happening kind of after Black Stacey, I suppose. Um, yeah, I think he, he kind of backloads it with some more experimental ideas. Totally, yeah. He, he takes a few more chances in this uh, side B, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and true to that, like track 11, Seaweed, almost has a, a production feel that's a bit like The Knife. I drive a yellow Volvo, 86 submarine. Someone's behind me in an Escalade, trying to blind me with the high beams to make a left. I'm on the road to nowhere, heading west. The sky is purple streaks, the sun is setting in my chest. I feel warm inside, so I'm going for a ride. Definitely big on the kind of aquatic sounds and themes in this one. Um, loads of bloop bloop kind of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great pitch for his voice, low and direct, where he's, he's just so comfortable at that range. Probably really comes from his years of doing poetry. It's, and it's also got a great kind of angelic, arty chorus thing, the uh, chorus breaks. Uh, did you notice that you can hear him laugh during it when he says the line, put some turquoise in that Rolls Royce before you crash into a pendulum? <laughs> <laughs> and it's the end of a verse, but you can actually hear him like... I don't mean laugh like ha ha ha. I mean like you can hear him laughing as he's trying to say the words, and he's just left it in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it has has some really nice touching lines in that song as well. There's one that really stands out to me when I hear it it's, that goes uh, heading west. The sky is purple streaks, and the sun is setting in my chest. And I really love that. It's it's, it's a beautiful little image, like a beautiful little metaphor. Yeah, big emo. I mean, he's also just talking about a uh, yellow Volvo. Like yes. 86 Which is pretty much My dream car so. <laughs> I was going to say Dave you are very much The kind of guy I would imagine Would one day buy a Volvo What do you mean I The car outside Is my fourth Volvo That I've ever owned I've had four Volvos He's a Volvo man Volvo I am life. a Volvo man I already am I'm retired <laughs> I've I've got a fleece I don't care um, You just wouldn't think We'd known each other For a long time <laughs> <laughs> I've been in that car I've, You have this, yeah. this is this is how little I care about cars So I've never actually noticed <laughs> I think the In this song Seeing the marimba And the kind of weird Hot and female vocal It's, I think it's a bit unnerving to me Sometimes 
And this That's why I thought it had a bit of the knife to it, though, because yeah. the knife, yeah. the knife were like a pop electro band, but they liked making you uneasy, mm-hmm. and I think that really comes through in this one as well. Yeah, it's kind of. Um, I'm like not sure about the chronology though, but I think the knife was 2003, wasn't it? Um, I don't know. It just seems like there's a little bit of that. Um, and then the final track, "Notice the Eviction." I think it's, it's a great choice for a final track. Woodwind kind of synth tone in it um, starts again this really low key vocal that I think sounds quite like Trent Reznor in delivery totally um, mm-hmm. the instrumentation is really subdued and almost kind of shamanic and it's almost nice but it's almost creepy he's, he's struck a really good balance um, and again I think maybe the Shaking the Habitual album that we covered in The Knife there's there's a lot of nods to that the, the backwards percussion the echoed vocals, um, the the chord progression at the end, it all gets like quite sinister, and then he's got that final sort of phrase of Elvis leaves the building. 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 Downpour from the darkest cloud, accumulated tension. It's a really, really well sequenced record, and I totally. think this was. The best possible way to finish it. I agree. can't really Im- imagine a better flow of the tracks. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I, I like in this particular song. I like the the distorted drums. You know, it, he's he's been playing most of the record. It's really played stuff. You know, and they're really really loud, and it's the same here. But for some reason, everything's like cloaked in this almost like really blanket of distortion almost. Which but Mark, there's no like, drums in this track. They're <laughs> all just implied. Have you heard them? You're imagining them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so guys, I, I, you, you know me, I don't have a lot of hip-hop in my catalogue, but I, I really, really like this guy. I like his direction, I like his personal take, I like his politics. The way he combines his politics, that the, it's not heavy-handed, um, but it seems quite sincere, and it also seems quite nuanced, as I mentioned about the troops thing. Uh, I love the production. I like it when he works with Trent Reznor, but I think this, he, he does a great job even when he's just working himself. Um, and it does, it strikes a good balance between sort of being quite verbose, but uh, also having a sense of humour and everything. I, I'm just a huge fan of it, and I think it would have taken something as good as this to, to really turn my head, because hip-hop was just not something that was in my world until I heard this. This is probably the first thing that I really liked. Well, I hate to say it, but you've introduced me to some hip-hop that I like, Chris. Which oh, is, my seems God. Weird. I never thought, I'd, I never <laughs> thought um, this would happen. Yeah, I can't... I, that's my I ringtone. Dis- <laughs> <laughs> I can't disagree with anything you said, really. Um... I really liked a lot of his stuff. Um, there's some bits on this record that are... it can be It's slightly patchy just because it does a lot of different things, but I'm also aware that that's kind of what it's, what it's trying to do and the records that come after are maybe a little bit more solid in terms of production, but just don't have as many ideas or, you know... I'm not sure. Don't actually stand out. I think it's patchiness is kind of what's good about it. Part of its appeal, yeah. 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 Um, and he's just a really fucking interesting guy as well. I really, his poetry, his his lyrics are, yeah, really good. That not preachy side of being political and yet still being very poetic. So, yeah. Yeah, very happy for it to go in. 
be smashing. Yeah, um, it's interesting you mentioned that about that being inc- a bit inconsistent, Dave, because I was just trying to think there, like, how many hip hop albums do you love that are completely consistent all the way through, really? Well, yeah, I know, that's true. And I mean, I guess that's kind of like a symptom of the way that they're made, you know, often with different producers and just trying different ideas. Hip hop records are quite often like hodgepodge artistic ideas yeah. rather than, you know, necessarily here's here's 10 songs that the band have been working on. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I like hip hop so much because it speaks to the punk in me in that regard. You know, the stuff is a bit, can sometimes be a bit incomplete and ideas can be not really fully fleshed out. But that's cool. Uh, I like this record yeah. a lot. I think me personally would have picked the guitar dust, but also me personally, there's like, there's a ball here between them. To be honest, there really yeah, is. Yeah, and, and also you're a big fucking Trent Reznor head, man. <laughs> you love that boy. I do, um, it's true. <laughs> um, but this is great. I love I, I love a lot of things about this album. Uh, I was really so, I was really impressed when I've heard it on. I was like, fuck, has Chris picked a good hip-hop record? What? Yeah. <laughs> so wait a minute, can I just check? Have I picked a good hip-hop record? You have, I think I you have. Yes! 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 Hang on, I'm going to... I'm giving the thumbs to the fucking weird boy at the window. <laughs> yes, big <laughs> man! Yes! <laughs> I've got to take a beard into him now, right? It's all sorted. Me and him, oh. rest of the night, he's, he's fucking... He has no fucking idea who I am. <laughs> um, it's cool. I've got a full head of hair. You, Denny, we'll team up. Um, right. <laughs> I'm, well, I guess I'm, it's I'm, time for... I'm um, proper delighted, by the way. Sorry, I'm, I'm all made up. <laughs> This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store for us? Not good. Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you, this is what you want. Let's let's do the fucking Nexus. This can't get any better. Nexus. My fucking neighbours are drowning right now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck those guys, man. Just now c- celebrate. You chose out of the box Annika Rice. I have a weird feeling that we've Dave, done her before, but I didn't, I didn't or, or maybe I just went through her on my on a nexus to somebody else. No, I feel like we've done it before. You're right. I feel like you're both right. We have done it before, and I feel like yes, reading between the lines, Chris. Why can you not take a bit of paper out of a tub and then put it in a bin? And why then you, not put it back in the tub? <laughs> why do you put it back in the tub? <laughs> and actually, what I didn't tell you was actually the, the, that wasn't the first thing I pulled at the tub because the first thing I pulled at the tub was one that we'd also done before. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm failing at the most basic of exercises, which is to transfer something for A to B. Well, at least he p- picked a good hip hop record, so yeah. that's fine. So, um. Yes, Annika Rice, uh, who is a British TV personality, uh, mainly from like the 80s and 90s, I think. Mm. Um, so I'm first. Yes, you yeah. go first. Saul Williams, the the guy behind the very good hip-hop album chosen by Chris. <laughs> <laughs> like this guy in the room. We should put that sticker uh, on the CD from now on. <laughs> Saul Williams was a signatory to uh, the boycott Zabladovich campaign. Um, now, this is one of the few things that me and Saul maybe are slightly not quite the same page about. I'm, I'm on the fence. The Zabladovich, uh, what is it? 
what, I don't know what you call it, like organisation. Like it's basically a, a an exhibition, a museum in London. It was founded in 1994 by a guy called Pochu Zabladovich. It's not his real name. I think his real name is Shaim Zabladovich, uh, and his wife Anita. And it's it's got a lot of art ties to Israel. Clearly, they're of Israeli descent. I think he's Finnish though, but. The the boycott Zabladovich uh, campaign accuses that uh, institution of art washing uh, the Israeli Palestine issue. Uh, now, in fairness, Zabladovich's father made a lot of money via companies like Tampella and Soltam, who are arms companies. That was his profession. He was an arms dealer. Uh, so, fair, fair criticism there. Uh, although, I do believe that he got rid of the arms arms of his company um, because of that. I don't think he's on the same page as his dad, albeit he's a beneficiary of the estate, I get that. Um, Sabladovich has done a, a fair amount of things. Uh, one of them that's not great is he donates to the Conservative Party. Oh, boo. Um, and he donated to David Cameron's uh, campaign, which brought his Brexit in its own way. Uh but he also has done things like he, he apparently in 2011 at his home in London he hosted Shimon Perez and uh, Mahmoud Abbas for, for what I think equates to kind of off the record peace talks to mm-hmm. try and sort of progress the issue. So I I, I don't know enough about this this guy. Um, what I do know is that the institution looks like a it looks like it is a very respectable art institution with a lot of philanthropic ties. He's involved in a he's set up a medical organization that researches autoimmune disease as well. I mean he is it's hard to tell when people donate heavily to charity how much of it is PR and how much of it is sincere. Just ask Bill Gates about that. Um but uh um we've spoken about the BDS campaigns in the past and whilst we absolutely share concerns huge concerns and reservations about Israeli conduct in Palestine. I think the BDS campaigns can often creep into like unsavory territory. So I'm just I'm just not entirely convinced on that and I need to spend a bit, a bit of time to really come to a, a real conclusion. But what Paul Zabladovich did do was uh, he and his wife donated between a hundred and two hundred and fifty K to the Clinton Foundation mm-hmm. uh, over the mm-hmm. years. Now the Clinton Foundation as we all know, um, harvests, harvests terrorised babies for their adrenochrome, which it then <laughs> serves up to uh, our lizard overlords, including George Soros. Um, but when it's not doing that, it also does things like outreach pro- uh, projects for American schools. Uh, one of them was the Step Up, Power Down initiative, which was to try and encourage sort of conservation of energy. They've done stuff in solar energy in California, quite a bit of it. And they did another one with the... the the super catchy name of the Energy Industry Fundamentals and Energy Literacy Curriculum, um, which was basically, I'm sure, dressed up with like a cartoon mascot or something like that, but it was to try and educate children on the future of, of power in the United States. And that was done in conjunction with Pacific Energy and Gas, or PG&E. Now, if you've ever heard the PG&E, Pacific Energy and Gas, sorry, Pacific, no, P-E-N-G, I guess it would be, anyway... Have you ever heard the P and G? It might be because you watched the movie Erin Brockovich, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie Erin Brockovich, I know I've mentioned the movie, but it's also a real story of uh, a legal clerk called Erin Brockovich who worked for the Marjorie and Vitito law firm and they were involved in a case that was called Anderson et al. versus P E and G or P G E, I can't remember. Um, and that was based 
around the town of Hinkley, California. And actually, the that uh, legal case was settled with the biggest settlement ever in American history. It was $333 million. Um, it was all to do with like a, a chemical called hexavalent chromium getting into the water supply. Anyway... Erin Brockovich, the person we're talking about, portrayed by Julia Roberts, but also portrayed by Erin Brockovich in real life, (laughs) uh, was actually, apart from being a legal clerk and sort of a minor minor celebrity who I think got done for driving a boat drunk at one point, um, she hosted an American show called Challenge America, which was actually the American version of Challenge Annika, which starred the British celebrity Annika Rice. There you go, good work. Excellent work. I saw the movie Aaron Brockovich in a Portuguese cinema because it was raining and we went to the cinema and they had a cigarette break halfway through the film. <laughs> Very fitting. Yeah. Nice. Uh, who's next? I'll go next. So, summer production work on this record is done by a guy called Mickey Petralia, um, who has most recently mixed the soundtracks for The Muppets and wow. The Muppets Most Wanted. Um, <laughs> He's a bit of a one-trick pony then. Eh? Uh, both of them were actually written by Brett McKenzie from Flight of the Concords and Mickey Petralia actually has actually produced their or worked on their records so I think he must be friends or like really close with uh, Brett McKenzie um, Now in the, in the Muppets Most Wanted there's this really little known actor from Britain I don't know if you've heard of him as a guy that found fame in America I don't really know how this happened but his name's Ricky Gervais um, mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't know mm-hmm. this but he actually did a TV show called The Office with a guy called Stephen Merchant, if you guys have heard of it. That's a British version of the American office. Right? That's exactly it, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, they remade it. <laughs> and uh, Stephen Merchant's appeared in a lot of film and TV, obviously, um, including the Edgar Wright film Hot Fuzz, which has a lot of great actors in it, one of which is Mr. Bill Bailey. Uh, mm-hmm. Bill Bailey's an English comedian, obviously. He's appeared on the panel show QI 42 times. Second only to Phil Jupitus, who has been on it 46 times. And on what, more than Alan, what's his name? Well, he's like a he's a he's no, he's a regular, he's, a he's on every single oh, one, he's okay, kind of okay, as a host. Okay, yeah. Um, and in season in series two, episode six, he appeared on the show alongside Annika Rice, where they discussed beavers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favourite fact from that episode is apparently the Pope often eats beaver on a Friday. <laughs> what? What? Well, the, I thought it was fish on a Friday. Well, I, that's what or I was going to say. Because the Catholic Church have deemed beavers to be fish on account of them living in water and being scaly. So therefore, the, the Pope will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sta- the Catholic I'm, I'm, Church called beavers I, fish. I'm starting to think that the Catholic Church is. Making up some stuff. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. It's possible. I think they might be on the wind up here. <laughs> so beavers for Lent, uh, guys. Beavers for Lent. Oh, well, there, there's um, a new, there's another new T-shirt for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Saul Williams was chosen for the lead in Holler. If you hear me, the Broadway musical featuring music by Tupac Shakur. Um, it's not actually about uh, Tupac, but um, it's kind of like basically uh, the first hip hop like musical. Sorry, um, I misspoke earlier on. I, I didn't really grasp what it was about. I just yeah. know he made a joke about not having to compete against Tupac Shakur's hologram in the casting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, as part of the production or like the promotion to that, he uh, Saul Williams did an interview on the Colbert Report. Uh, the Colbert, Colbert, the Colbert Col- report Colbert. featuring Stephen Colbert is the late night talk and news satire 
program hosted by Stephen Colbert, and it was actually created by Ben Carlin, Stephen Colbert, and John Stewart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John Stewart, he of the John Stewart Show and the Daily Show, and he's just created many other satire things. Uh, John Stewart, when he had a little break from the Daily Show, his uh, correspondent took over. Um, I think it was because he directed a film, Rosewater, was John Oliver, the American comedian who went over and got a job in about 2011 or something over in Washington. Um, He's now an American citizen, he actually naturalised this year. Yeah, yeah, and he's, uh, I think he was named in like the Times Top 100 Most Powerful People on Earth now. He's gone from being a little known English comedian to being a sidekick uh, on satire and now he's the biggest name in satire pretty much. Uh, John Oliver has for the last 16 years I believe produced and hosted the podcast The Bugle or he he started it back in 2004 I think. Yeah he stopped hosting uh, it. With Andy Zaltzman and then he stopped doing it about four years ago when he had too much uh, shit on his plate in New York. Um, But Andy Zaltzman his previous co-host still does it with uh, guest hosts. I think he's maybe believed uh, appeared on QI as well but Zaltzman's biggest thing is that he's a fucking massive cricket fan. Mm-hmm. He just absolutely loves cricket. He loves statistics about cricket. He loves the boredom of it. He loves the fact that it ta- the fact that it takes five days and that rain can put it off. He's very aware of how stupid a sport it is, but he loves it. Uh, and in 2011, for Crick Info, he uh, actually did a blog for the 2011 World Cup and a number of podcasts the Cricket World Cup in 1999 was hosted in England and Annika Rice was involved in a one day event before the 1999 Cricket World Cup trying to get new people especially women to get into cricket Wonderful. she shouldn't have bothered <laughs> she shouldn't have bothered because it is rubbish <laughs> yeah it's pretty shit sorry cricket fans in fact not sorry cricket fans sort your lives out yeah. I'm, I'm anyway, st- I'm still pure buzzing off of my new found tip up credentials. But uh, yeah. yeah, well done, well done. Who's up next week? Well, so uh, well next next week I've actually I've got this nineties uh, uh, Steve Albini produced uh, played shirt record. No, I'm not. I'm not really. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going. I'm not going to do the same thing. Uh, no, like I'm. <laughs> I am next week. I, I think we're going to cover Burial by Burial. Okay, the debut record mm-hmm. um, by the sort of electronic. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see what you think of it and see if you think it's unsung. But uh, I, I think it'll be an interesting chat. Mm. <laughs> Ominous. Maybe. Well, uh, I'm going to grab a couple of tinnies and go out in the, the grass and meet this fucking mad hippie. See what you're saying to it. Oh, and I'm, I'm going to sort of open the post box to drain out some of the water from my neighbours as well. Good idea. Buy them another hour of life. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of you. <laughs> All right, guys. All right, guys. Well, it's a pleasure. And uh, see, see you next week, guys. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.